0: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that puts the O into O, politics. This is episode 97, I'm Tin and Duyeb, and while the prospect of World War 3 is hugely depressing, just consider the silver lining that at least they could make a cool logo for it, you know, where the 3 is like a W but on its side, do you know what I mean? It's all about branding, right, guys? Yes, once again the Western world have decided that they need to bomb Syria, you know, for peace. After a nasty chemical weapon attack on Duma, a city in southwestern Syria that was likely carried out by chinless vampire and president Bashir al-Assad, Doeball left out in the rain and US President Donald Trump felt prompted to send in airstrikes to save all the children that he won't let into the US. Jumping to his aid were French president and primary school boy with an aging disease, Emmanuel Macron, because hey, France, stirring up shit in Syria since 1923. And of course, our UK Prime Minister and bone collector, Theresa May, who decided that rather than recall Parliament to vote on the matter or take notice that there was absolutely no public support for it, she would just authorise action because, you know, the will of the people or something. Downing Street has said they are confident the strikes that were carried out on Friday night were successful, which based on their previous use of the word confident means the strikes will be fired by the end of the week. Punchbag made of overripe plums and Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson said that the airstrikes would not turn the tide of the conflict in Syria, but would say enough is enough in terms of deterring more chemical attacks. Yeah, classic UK government move. Hey guys, you may continue killing civilians, but please only do it with weapons that we've sold to you. Former Prime Minister and professional shoe target Tony Blair backed the action, which sort of says to me it probably wasn't the right move. It's kind of like if you've heard of a medical treatment that sounded like it could be a good thing, but then you find out that Harold Shipman was a fan. Labour leader Jeremy, if you bring me 10 rushrooms, I'll reward you with 100 rupees, Corbyn, yes, that is quite niche, said that May's actions were legally questionable and that she should have recalled Parliament. Recall Parliament? Mate, how would she remember 650 MPs' names when she can barely remember decisions she made last week? May addressed the comments about the strike that happened two days previously and next she'll likely lead a debate about possibly now closing the stable door three weeks after all the horses disappeared and she got sent four pots of glue in the post. May said the strikes were moral and legal which would make it a first for her to get the double. And sadly there was no non-binding vote by the opposition after the debate which is a shame as I'd hoped the government would lose just so there was increasing pressure on May to spend the rest of her time as Prime Minister working out how to go back in time to fix things. Syria are still denying the attack has anything to do with them, while not allowing chemical inspectors from the OPCW to investigate the site in Douma. That's like saying, no, it's definitely not a body I've got rolled up in these carpets, but you'd better not look because he'll fall out if I have to unwrap it all, and it took ages to get his droopy carcass in there. Assad's allies, Russia, have said that the UK staged the chemical attack in Douma, which is hilarious because have you seen our government? They couldn't manage something like that. I mean, May would try to U-turn on it seconds before it happened, Liam Fox would have his own alibi that didn't fit with anyone else's, and Boris would have tried the chemicals first to be a lad and ended up in A&E. Trump tweeted mission accomplished after the raid, though no one's sure if that's because it went well, or once again he was on the toilet and tweeted instead of informing Melania that he was done. Meanwhile, in the US, Donald Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, a man who looks like a cartoon dog in a human flesh skin suit, had his offices raided by the FBI last week, which is the law equivalent of a Hollywood celebrity hunting down someone who is walking around wearing a cardboard cut out of their face. The FBI have not stated what evidence they were looking for or what they found, but it was prompted by Cohen's admittance that he made a $130,000 payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels for her silence about her affair with Trump, though why anyone would want to admit to sleeping with that condom filled with old porridge, I'm not sure. Trump said that the FBI raid was an attack on our country, which hopefully means he'll only be building a wall around Cohen's offices and presiding over matters that happen there from now on, rather than the rest of the US. Michael Cohen's lawyers revealed to the court on Monday evening that as well as Trump and former Republican fundraiser Elliot Brody, who also paid off a Playboy model he'd had an affair with, that his third client was Fox News host and irate chin Sean Hannity. That means that the self-righteous smug prick has likely also had to pay off someone to silence them. And while it probably won't come to much more than that, it's incredibly pleasing knowing that his already stained reputation for being a Trump-supporting, conspiracy-touting idiot is now in a further deep state of shit. Former FBI director James Comey has released his memoir called A Higher Loyalty, in which he refers to the Trump presidency as a forest fire and says Trump is morally unfit to be president. I mean, come on now, that's a little bit unfair. He's physically unfit as well, so it's kind of well-balanced. Co-founder of Facebook and an early attempt at AI that appears human, Mark Zuckerberg, appeared in front of the US Congress to answer questions about its privacy breaches. Yes, the result was a lot of people who looked like they'd been freshly dug up, trying to understand if Facebook was something they could access via an abacus. While Zuckerberg somehow avoided answering it's complicated to absolutely everything. Ultimately, a lot of pointless questions were asked, tons of information was gathered and no real useful conclusion was made, leaving absolutely everyone unhappy. So all in all, it was quite a lot like Facebook then. In other news, Health Secretary and perpetually startled emu Jeremy Hunt has been referred to the Parliamentary Standards watchdog after failing to declare his purchase of seven luxury flats in Southampton, which is not the first time he's got in a fluster about the number of beds available. Let's be fair, if it were any other MP, just forgetting they own properties would be suspicious, but with Hunt it seems fairly reasonable. I'm certain most days he has absolutely no memory of what his job is in the first place. Labour have announced plans for free bus fares for the under 25s and that's not even on a condition that they don't play shitty music from their phone while travelling or anything. Conservative MP and man that proves nominative determinism isn't a thing took to Twitter to say that, and remember kids, when it comes to elections, Labour think you're an adult at 16, when it comes to bus travels, you're not an adult till 25. Yeah, it's a bit rich from a party who don't pay minimum wage or housing benefits until 25, but still want kids to pay as much as possible to travel to their badly paid jobs. I mean, you may as well appeal to the youth vote by telling them the Tories will make them pay to work, but hey, they will get a free lollipop for every 10 chimneys swept. And lastly, the Prime Minister has apologised to those in the Windrush generation who've lived in the UK for up to 70 years but are now being told they're here illegally. May values deeply the contribution these people have made, and rightly so, as if she really wants to get rid of 70-year-olds who pop over from abroad to waste the UK's resources, she should just sack most of the Conservative peers.
1: Hey, hey, hey!
0: Sorry, it's that time of the year, so my hay fever is kicking in. Ha! Another dad joke. Oh, God, what is... What is happening to me? And I've had some sleep. Anyway, how's you? Oh dear, really? Well, I heard that heads do grow back, so hopefully you won't be like that for too long. Um, I'm good, thank you for asking. Another week, another podcast where writing this show took twice as long due to my daughter doing the sort of poos that earlier my wife referred to as Sheet Nam because she might not get over the trauma of such horrors. Um, we do have an agreement that while I am Nappy Changer General on Mondays, she does that while I do this show. But today, oh God, today, it has required both of us. I mean, it's amazing how i both appalled and a little bit in awe of my daughter for it. This is really all I talk about now as well. Just poo. Around our flat is just shouting to each other, is she okay? Has she pooed? Go on, think I didn't talk enough shit already. Um, but there is a podcast of sorts. So thank you, Parpol Brods, for once again tuning in. Um, this week, I would like to thank Dan for doing the Patreon thing, uh, which not only rhymes, but also I've realised, thanks to a podcaster's Facebook group that I'm in, uh, that I've been pronouncing Patreon wrongly for ages, because I thought it was On like it was owned by someone called Pat, or, you know, like the UK pronunciation of patriotic, but actually it's like the US version of Pay-Tree-On, uh, those trees you can deposit cash into that they have in the Americas. Um, oh, well, wow, I think I've just invented the magic money tree. Um, if you can donate to the Patreon, please do, even if it's just a dollar a month, as eventually, if enough of you do it, I will hire some poor soul uh, just to pop by on a Monday and hold my daughter's feet so she doesn't stamp them into a substance that's put me off Dijon mustard for life the Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and hopefully me pronouncing it correctly might direct more of you there Um, if you don't want to do a monthly thing then head to ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro to buy me a coffee which at the moment I would consider some sort of amnesty level charitable aid to be honest Um, thank you also to the three iTunes reviews that were left last week with two very lovely wordy reviews included in that and if you haven't reviewed the show please please do that on your pod app of choice hit the five stars and just type a few words I mean, they don't even have to be words that make sense. Just your favourite words, perhaps in some sort of display of words that you like. Uh, Mine, for example, would be plinth obliterate effervescent booty. Um, the only bit of admin this week is that while sadly this show did not get nominated for a British Podcast Award, something that many excellent podcasts, uh, including the brilliant Stop and Search podcast with former guest Jason Reed, did, um, it does mean that perhaps this show is just too cool and too cult to become mainstream. <clears throat> That's what I'm telling myself anyway. Um, but the Listener Award is still open, though, and while this show probably doesn't have enough of you listening to win it, if you have a minute and you fancy entering partly political broadcast name on... Podcastawards.com forward slash nominations hyphen 2018 that'd be appreciated um yes i mean all i've asked you to do is ask you to do things uh, throughout this haven't i god i mean and what might you ask do i ever do for you in return uh well i've said booty uh, now twice in this show after i've just said it again there so if that isn't enough um i don't know what is booty there you go third just for you on this week's show I have a chat with Mia Sullivan who volunteers with the SOAS detainee support who support people who've been placed in immigration detention Um, there is also a look at Syria a subject that requires the sort of nuance that hasn't really been seen anywhere online this week but that is because nuance heads to Twitter to die of course I don't want it to die but it is worth thinking about whether it should be kept alive if it's being neglected and suffering but of course if it does die will a number of hot topics suffer as a result so so tricky Um, oh and there is still no Brexit. Hooray! It turns out that the feeble answer to war, what is it good for, is, well actually it means we don't have to hear about fucking Brexit. I mean no, I'm not sure that's the toss up anyone asked for, but hey, times are bleak, I'll take what I can get. Anyway, there are no headlines this week because I'm so, so tired. So instead, let's crack on with this. can't have a rational conversation about immigration say lots of people in news interviews rather than saying anything rational about immigration they usually then follow that with it's not racist to talk about immigration which it isn't but then whatever they say next usually is immigration has been the blame of the housing crisis nhs crisis austerity terrorism and well just about anything else that people can't remember were caused by government policies because if you shout look over there quickly enough they'll forget anything Personally, I feel that immigration brings a wealth of benefits to the UK, rather than taking any, and I believe that mainly due to facts. And that I like having enough staff in our legal education and health service to name but a few, eating food that isn't just pies, and culture that isn't just Morris dancers pissing in Toby jugs. Or whatever it is that they do. But... Even if for some reason you think that this country is full, which it isn't, I mean there's not even anyone walking down my street right now, and I'm peering out of the window as I record this like a very nosy neighbour. But even if you think that, the way in which May's government treat those classed as immigrants is inhumane. Giving them indefinite detention at a variety of secretive detention centres and then deporting them with little to no notice and no rights to see family or loved ones. This includes men, women and children seeking asylum, refuge and those our government has decided are illegal even if, as the past week of news is finally highlighted with the Windrush generation, they have been living and contributing to the UK for over 70 years. Who knew that the only real way to apply for citizenship was to donate to the Conservative Party and buy a ton of luxury flats just so other people can't live in them? Yarlswood Immigration Removal Centre is located in Bedfordshire and is described as a fully contained residential centre housing adult women and adult family groups awaiting immigration clearance, which sounds a lot like how an estate agent would sell a prison. A site called Detained Voices has been collecting the stories and statements of the women in prison in Yarl's Wood and provides a very bleak and often harrowing account of just what these people are going through at the behest of the Home Office. Detained Voices don't do any media work, they just present verbatim accounts. And so this week I spoke to Mia Sullivan from SOAS Detainee Support who agreed to talk to me with Detained Voices' consent about why not enough people know about this, why 100 detainees went on hunger strike in February and what can be done to protest about it and help. I was very, very grateful to Mia for having the time. And after the second part of the interview, when I do the links, I'm going to plug how you can donate to SOAS Detainee Support because everything they do is voluntarily and they really, really need your help if you can afford to. So please just be aware of that as you listen. Anyway, hope you find this as informative as I did. Here is Mia. So firstly, can you tell me what SOAS Detainee Support is and what you do? That's probably a good place to start.
1: Yeah, sure. Sure um so astatian's support we refer to as SDS everyone loves a good acronym um we are a grassroots abolitionist group um we're primarily student led like at the origin was students but now there's a lot of like non student involvement in it um and our vision is basically a world with no borders and no incarceration um our aims are kind of to reduce isolation for those that are in immigration detention we offer practical support to people that are fighting for release from detention um, and also campaign for an end to the use of detention as a control mechanism for immigration at all. Um, our like primary activity is visiting. That's kind of central to what we do. So we are essentially a visiting group. We go and visit people that are um, detained in immigration removal centres. Um, and the nature of the visits is quite like dependent on the specific needs and desires of like the person that we're visiting and that is kind of set out by each individual visitor with the person that they're visiting like we do offer a like a variety of signposting like emotional support practical support which kind of involves like maybe help finding a solicitor or finding medical experts or like bringing essential items into detention for people like toiletries um but how that relationship unfolds is very much like on their on the terms of the person that's in detention and like what they need and what they ask for, so it's not like prescribed in any way.
0: And and without wanting to sort of sound too ignorant about this, but I think it's it's so rarely reported. Can you tell us about what the immigration detention centres are like? Because from the reports I've read, they're pretty horrific places, and I, I think a lot of people aren't even aware that they exist a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, um, they are essentially prisons. Um, once you're detained in immigration detention, you can't leave um, and you are held there. What we refer to as indefinitely. The government are insistent that that's not true. But like if you at no point know when you're going to leave and some people have been detained for up to like three, four years, seems pretty indefinite to me in terms of there's no definitive like release date. Um, and yeah, it's it's quite similar to a prison. Keep, people have a room that they're like usually paired with someone else that they live in that room. There's like a dining hall and a library and a visiting room, which is the bit of the centre that I have access to or like the people that visit have access to when we go and see people. Um, It's quite a sterile environment. It's run by a private security firm, um, whether that's Circo or G4S or Mighty, and are government contracts that are given to these private security firms. And a lot of those private security firms also run prisons. So there's not a very clear distinction between like the guards which is what they're referred to like home office officials and and like Cerco private security firm guards so like yeah for people that don't necessarily know what immigration detention is kind of imagine a prison and it's not dissimilar from that apart from that no one inside has necessarily committed an offense <laughs> right um, i mean because
0: that's what i was going to ask is it people that are in there because suppose well because they're asylum seekers or because supposedly they're illegal Im- immigrants is is that the those are the people that are, that are put into immigration detention centers. is that right? It's hard to say um,
1: immigration detention is basically an administrative form of imprisonment. So in theory, the government say that they exist in order to like do the administrative necessities to remove someone from the country. Um, but as statistics show, like a lot of people that are detained in immigration removal centers get released. Um, a lot of those people that get released into the community then gain successful asylum applications or are given the right to work, are given indefinite leave to remain. Um, like, as is coming in the news recently, a lot of British citizens, like, are, are detained in immigration detention. International students at the end of their student visa, when they're applying for work visas, they can, they are and can be detained. Um, the Home Office seemed to have a policy of, like, detain first, work out whether we should have detained later. Um so yeah there's a lots lots of people in immigration detention yeah a lot of them are claiming asylum and are claiming refuge a lot of them are spouses of eea citizens there's a lot of eea citizens in there like it's a it's a really wide plethora of of groups of people that are detained um there's not a lot of <laughs> discrimination specific to one group like the home office will pretty much detain anyone that they can
0: yeah it does sort of sound like a, a horrible way of just you know they, they don't know what to do with these people so rather than do some sort of sensible admin they just shove them all into a prison which is a is a really it's really harrowing to hear about it i mean and, and one of the reasons I, I got in contact with you is um because of the uh site detained voices which i've been following quite a lot of on twitter and, and reading their website which has quite a lot of very harrowing accounts of the people that are being detained at Yarl's Wood. Um, Can you tell me a bit about, uh, you know, I know obviously you're not a spokesperson um, for them, but you work with them quite closely. Can you tell me a bit about Detained Voices and why what they're doing is so important?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, I guess Detained Voices is a platform that exists to just amplified the voices of those in immigration detention or those who have experienced it like family and friends of people who have experienced it um it's just that it's a platform to amplify the experiences of people and that's important because the way that the immigration mechanism is set up especially the use of immigration detention is that it is isolating and it it kind of stops people's voices from being heard like for a start they're in the middle of nowhere they have access to phones but the signal seems to be pretty bad they have very limited internet access um there is quite strict rules in terms of visiting and like what you can like can and can't bring in and out and like you know there's not an open flow of communication you know the fact that amber rudd wouldn't let diane abbott visit for like over a year you know that that the Shadow Home Affairs Secretary has been trying to get into one of these centers unsuccessfully for almost a year it would suggest that there's not a particularly open flow of communication and information regarding what happens um so for us something like detained voices is really important because it's just verbatim statements from people in immigration detention in terms of what they're actually experiencing and and, and like a platform to be able to get that to the public um yeah they are they're quite harrowing statements um I guess that's probably because it's the reality of what immigration detention actually is and like the force, the forced detention, like forced deportation practices and like, yeah, hearing verbatim what that's like for someone is quite upsetting because it is a very traumatic and
0: distressing like
1: sector of society that we don't know a lot about.
0: Yeah, it was particularly, I mean, I say particularly all of it, I found quite upsetting, but the kind of people just being taken away at night and people just being taken away at the weekends without them being given any warning and suddenly handcuffed and you know yeah. taken away uh, you know it sounds like something from uh, sort of a film you know it's, it's not something you'd expect to be happening or you're not i don't think people expect to be happening in the uk um uh, well, how have the home office have, have the home office ever justified their use of yarlswood and, and how these detention centers work or have they not even bothered trying
1: yeah i mean it's it's within their policies to use immigration detention as an as a mechanism to control immigration um they roll out a pretty standard line every time they're questioned about it, whether that's in the House of Commons or the House of Lords or publicly, like in response to recent media coverage of, of detention. It's been pretty much the same thing, which is like, you know, it's an essential part of effective immigration controls. It's used for the minimum time possible. We do it on a case by case basis, like blah, blah, blah. Um and every comment and statement that they make kind of misses the crux of the situation, which is that detaining and deporting people just because of their migratory decisions is wrong. Um, and the treatment that those people are receiving whilst in detention is wrong, illegal and immoral. Like, um, and yeah, it's it's obviously difficult when you, when you hear statements from a government and, and you are, you have access to statistical information that would suggest that they are just completely contradicting themselves. And like, no one seems to pick that up in a way that, gathers a lot of traction um like statistics to show that detention is not effective as a deportation mechanism like most people that are detained are not deported it's not used as a last resort like a lot of people that have asylum applications pending or have ongoing migration like immigration cases with the home office are detained like that's not a last resort their their, their cases are being processed they should be free in the uk to go about their private lives and to to have full access to like to their cases and to lawyers and to medical specialists that would, like, help them with their cases, whereas if they're detained, they obviously can't do that. Um, And it's also evidently not used for a minimal amount of time. Like, people are detained for months, some years. Um, A lot of those people are what the government would consider an adult at risk or a vulnerable person, um, and there doesn't seem to be a particularly effective safeguarding mechanism in terms of stopping those people from being detained. Um, But, yeah, the Home Office is the same line every time is like it's done on a case-by-case basis don't worry we're on it and you just kind of think well I
0: don't think you are (laughs) yeah it's, it's such a depressing thing to think that people are coming here because they're at risk or they're vulnerable and then we treat them by throwing them in a prison and then removing some of their basic human rights it doesn't that doesn't seem right in any way that they should do that and and i i mean that it's sort of the one of the glimpses that we did have in the news of it recently is that 120 detainees at yarlswood went on hunger strike um probably sounds like a silly question but what prompted that to happen other i mean obviously it's probably all of the conditions but was there something specific that prompted that to happen has this just been building up for a long time and did it make any difference at all
1: yeah um i think it would be difficult to to say what necessarily like catalyzed that hunger strike but i think if you're to look back um over the last kind of couple of years and especially since 2012-13 when the hostile environment policies were rolled out by Theresa May when she was in the home office um, there's quite a long history of hunger strike in immigration detention, obviously, as a political tool in prisons and in various other like situations. It's it's been used quite regularly. But um, there is specifically a history of people hunger striking in immigration detention as like a last resort, basically. Like the only way that they feel like their voices are going to be heard, they're putting their lives like on the line in order to be listened to because up until this point nothing that they're saying is gaining any traction in the media or in parliament and like they feel voiceless and completely isolated and ignored um and it's difficult to say what change is made like they they release a very specific list of demands um, and detained voices was kind of one of the
0: platforms for that information that they wanted to spread getting out um and what and- was uh sorry sorry to interrupt. what was on that can you tell us a bit about what was on that list of demands and what yeah,
1: um, it was interesting it was about the wider system of immigration detention obviously it's focused quite a lot on yarswood because some of a lot like most of the people that are on hunger strike have been in in yarswood um and there is generally a lot more media attention around that detention center because it's a female only center um or the only kind of female only center in the uk um but their demands were about the system on a much wider scale than that, just in terms of holding the Home Office to account for, like, its own policies, um, as well as the mistreatment of specific individuals within immigration detention. Um, Yeah, so they kind of, the demands were, you can read them on the Detained Voices website, um, but in the words of the actual hunger strikers themselves, it was kind of things like an end to indefinite detention, um, a return to the original plan of a 28-day time limit, which is what the rest of the world and Europe have, Um, It was, you know, the Home Office to respect due process and stop deporting people before their case is decided, like before their appeals are heard. Um, An end to charter flights, the snatching of people from their beds in the night, herding them like animals. Um, A demand for the Home Office to stop detaining vulnerable people, which is victims of rape, torture, all forms of torture, trafficking, forced labour, disabled people, the mentally ill, the list goes on. Um, But yeah, the response that the Home Office gave to these women who were identified to be on hunger strike was to accelerate their cases. Um, A lot of women that had been on hunger strike received notification that the Home Office were going to speed up the process of their deportation, um, which is, yeah, it's pretty mad seeing as that a lot, some of the women that were on hunger strike have pending immigration cases. um, And obviously it is technically legal to deport someone and then for them to appeal that decision out of country. But, it doesn't take a genius to, to work out that if you're claiming asylum, you shouldn't be returned to the country of origin that you fled from before your asylum case has been seen by a court. Um, and that was brought up in the House of Commons um, by Diane Abbott and a couple of other people. And again, the the response of Caroline Noakes, immigration officer for the government, was just like, it's a case-by-case basis. This is something, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. This is totally normal. Da-da-da-da-da. Um, so yeah, it's hard to say if, if the hunger strike has made a drastic difference, it's made a difference to, to a lot of publicity and a lot of campaigners and and it's made a huge difference to, to people inside immigration detention, having the realization that there are lots of people that, that are listening to them and do care about them and are fighting and campaigning and petitioning and demanding to hold the government to account for their behavior. But obviously in terms of the home office and the government response, um, Serco, the company that is responsible for Yarlswood, like for running it, like categorically denied that there was a hunger strike and that it ever took place. Um, Baroness Williams, who is a member of the House of Lords, claimed that there's a lot of reasons why people might be refusing food, you know, suggesting that there might be dietary or religious reasons, which is completely inane considering that they've given a list of, like they've written a list of demands and said, this is why we're not eating. Like, it just seems bizarre that people are going, oh, there's loads of other reasons why they might not be eating. It's like someone specifically said to you why they're doing it. <laughs> cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. And we'll be back with Mia in a minute, but first. You, can't be serious, man. you cannot be serious!
1: You cannot be serious! You cannot be, you cannot be, you cannot be serious!
0: Syria, the cradle of civilization, that in recent years has made us all wish the bow had been broken and the cradle of baby had just fallen before civilization grew into such a lost cause. The Syrian civil war is more complex than Brexit negotiations are for David Davis, a man who looks like he'd get confused by his own reflection. If you're a long-time pod listener, do head back to episode 34, where I tried to explain some of it, and have a slightly odd interview with Dr. Marcus Papadopoulos, who gives a very uh, pro-Russian view of it all. That's probably the best way to say it. Um, There is also the bestest video from Vox from a year ago that I've posted on the Facebook group and Twitter. That is, as far as I'm concerned, the most simple, easy-to-understand guide that there is. Well, it was when it was released last year, but since then, Syria has seen how complex Syria was, and then told itself to hold its own beer, which wouldn't be possible, but it is because it's that complicated. So I thought I'd use my complete lack of knowledge to try and explain exactly what this last week of chaos is all about before, no doubt, the news forgets about it all next week and pretends Prince Philip's hip operation is even more important, even though it's not, because it doesn't matter how much hip you insert into him, he'll never be cool. Never, ever. So... What is it all about this time? Well, on April the 7th, there was a chemical attack in an area on the outskirts of Damascus called Duma. And while numbers are still a bit sketchy, it seems over 40 people died of a chlorine attack. Yes, that stuff that protects you from other people's wee in swimming pools. Yeah, see, you really shouldn't swallow when you do underwater strokes. For some time now, Duma has been under armed opposition, a.k.a. rebel fighters against Assad's regime, a.k.a. J Shal islam the ones you might pretend are the good guys but who've allegedly used chemical weapons and used captives as human shields, in a quick reminder that everyone involved in this is shit-awful. Since 2016, the Assad regime has been trying to get these areas back under its control by waging military campaigns on them in the hope of evacuating anyone who doesn't want to be ruled by Assad. Basically, it's a super harsh version of take it or leave it, and thousands and thousands of people have had to leave their homes. Now, Assad and Russia have cut some sort of deal with the opposition fighters to send some fighters away and allow others to stay if they worked with the government, but this deal broke down, then there was the chemical attack, and then Jaish al-Islam agreed to the deal again, and now loads of people are evacuating Duma. Which follows the current situation of Assad seeming to win the civil war, which isn't a good thing, but because foreign powers keep getting involved, things keep escalating, which also isn't a good thing. Ultimately, unless some sort of deity or mythical creature gets involved, there really isn't a good way to fix this. It's kind of like when a kid gets their head stuck in the gaps in a banister. Sure, the kid that did it is a dick, the banister wasn't ideal, and really they're both partly to blame. But either we cut the banister or the kid, and whatever happens, someone is going to be a bit sad. What do you mean foreign powers keep getting involved? Well, if you say there are three sides to this war, like an angry triangle, uh, there is Assad and the Syrian army who are murderous bastards, the anti-Assad opposition who are a multitude of different groups and also murderous bastards, and then ISIS who are like really chill dudes. No, wait, sorry, murderous bastards. The US is in Syria mainly to fight ISIS. Trump keeps saying the US will leave Syria, but like with all his promises, that means there are now 2,000 more troops there than when he said that in the first place. Europe are also fighting ISIS, but are also keen to stabilise the situation because the refugee crisis is mainly affecting them, and hey, let's save those kids, but only in a way that means they don't want to stay with us. Russia are supporting Assad against the anti-Assad rebels and ISIS, and basically wanting to secure even more Middle Eastern ties along with their close relationships with Iran, Turkey and Israel. Because yeah, what the endlessly unstable Middle East needs is help from a despotic new potato like Putin, who kills his political opponents and probably hacks elections. Iran supports Assad but also wants to be involved in Syria so it can harass Israel, its enemy, from their borders. Israel, meanwhile, is in Syria to oppose Iran and it sort of feels a bit like Syria is the younger sibling sat in the middle seat in the back of the car caught between two very angry older brothers and getting hit in the face as blows past them. Saudi Arabia is in Syria also to oppose Iran and fund the anti-Assad rebels and Turkey is in Syria against the Kurds who are in turn opposed to Assad. So the obvious solution would be for the UN to enforce some sort of ceasefire so we can sort all of this stuff out, but they can't do that because Russia won't agree to it. So instead the obvious obvious solution would just be for someone's mum to yell stop it really loudly and then make everyone apologise like they mean it. Why does this chemical attack cause such a response? Assad and Russia have been using chemical weapons throughout the Syrian civil war that definitely isn't civil because a. other countries are involved and b. using chemical weapons just isn't very civil Normally they use chlorine because it's not counted as a nerve agent and doesn't usually cause as many casualties so no one really cares because the news only likes it when a. lots of people die or b. one white person dies In 2012 President Obama, do you remember him? Do you remember him? The president who wasn't perfect at all, but could spell things so it seemed better. Yeah, him. He said Syria using chemical weapons was a red line, which meant, I don't know, Indiana Jones would fly a plane there or something. And then last year, Trump, you know, the one who is worse and can't spell, so seems even worse yeah him, he launched airstrikes in response to a chemical weapons attack in Khan Sheikhoun, and now the precedent is set by the president to do that with chemical attacks, because, you know, Trump only has measured sensible ideas, so let's all follow a man who probably has no idea where Syria is in the first place. Have we ever actually stopped sending airstrikes to Syria? Well, no, not really. The Ministry of Defence publishes weekly airstrikes on the gov.uk site that anyone can access and just a quick look shows, for example, that every day from January 6th this year to January 21st, they used hellfire or guided missiles to destroy something. SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon tweeted that airstrikes have not resolved the situation in Syria so far, so is not persuaded that they will do so now. And the US, France and Israel have also all been sending in airstrikes for ages and ultimately you have to wonder if their plan to bring about peace is just to destroy everything so there's nothing left to cause a disturbance. The RAF strikes this past weekend were supposedly very specifically targeted at somewhere Assad had been stockpiling chemical weapons, some distance away from civilian concentrations and using storm shadow missiles which are apparently extremely accurate, say people who want to sell them for lots and lots of money.
1: Was it Asad what done the chemical attack in the
0: first place? Uh, possibly, and probably, especially as his regime has used chlorine attacks a lot before, and after this attack, Jayashal Islam agreed to evacuate out of Duma, so that all seems quite convenient. It also doesn't look great that Russia and Assad's regime aren't letting the Organisation of Prohibition of Chemical Weapons send their investigators to the attack site to check. And there are accounts that helicopters were over the site at the time, and the opposition don't use helicopters, you know, because they're just scared that they'll jump out while going, yay, and then cut their arms off. I mean, that's, that's the fear I have, that's why I'll never go in one. But Jayesh al-Islam also have a history of chemical weapon use, and now all Assad's chemical weapon stockpiles have been destroyed, no one can match the samples that they can't collect with more samples that they also can't collect. Helpful? No. I mean, CSI Syria would be a really, really long, really boring show with an awful lot of thumb twiddling and pointless walking around in circles. Does anyone actually care about the kids? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, last year, before he authorised airstrikes after the chemical weapons attacks in Khan Sheikhoun, Trump said it was due to seeing pictures of beautiful babies being killed that meant he had to do something. But then his continuing travel ban still applies to Syrians who are seeking to flee to the US. And in fact, the US has only resettled 11 Syrian refugees this year. That may be on the part of the Syrians, because let's be fair, leaving Assad to go to Trump is a bit like going from frying pan into a towering inferno of shit. Theresa May condemned these recent attacks, saying something must be done. But her party voted against taking in 3,000 unaccompanied children from Syria under the Dubs Amendment. In fact, the UK has only taken in 18% of its fair share of Syrian refugees compared to other countries. And in fact, the missiles that were fired over the weekend cost £790,000 each. And so with eight of them used, that's £6.32 million, which could have instead been used to resettle 269 refugees at a cost of just over £23,000 each. Thing is, though, May said there was no alternative to the strikes, which is the exact opposite of what she said when junior doctors weren't happy just a year ago. Weird. Should May have asked Parliament? The government say they have legal justification for May authorising strikes without checking with anyone first, even though, really, considering everything she's done so far as Prime Minister, points to how she should really ask for help before she even pops to the loo or crosses the road. The legal justification says you can call for military intervention when there is evidence of extreme humanitarian distress on a large scale requiring immediate relief, which is recognised by the international community. Which kind of makes me wonder why no one ordered a military strike on our government after the Grenfell fire. The other two criteria are that it must be objectively clear that there is no alternative to the use of force if lives are to be saved and that the use of force must be proportionate to the aim of relief of humanitarian suffering and must be limited in time and scope. So with dozens of people dying in the chemical attack, Russia constantly vetoing inspectors to check the site, and the strikes being on specific targets just over one night, then you could sort of say that it all fits. Except the UN General Secretary isn't 100% convinced, and Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn pointed out in the comments that it's definitely legally questionable on a number of grounds. These are, as Corbyn asked, that if these were done as a kind of enough-is-enough-no-more-chemical-weapons attacks, then how come the US has made loads of airstrikes after previous chemical attacks It's made fuck-all difference? Corbyn also asked if the humanitarian crisis in Yemen now gives other countries the right to bomb Saudi Arabia, where they keep all the illegal cluster bombs they're using on the Yemeni people. Silly Corbyn, of course not, as they buy UK weapons, so they're A-OK. Okay. And then Jez also said that non-military means haven't been exhausted because the OPCW haven't investigated yet, but then Russia won't let them investigate and keep vetoing the UN, so that doesn't really work because that's kind of more stalemate than a really old gingerbread man. But legally, there is no precedent that May had to have asked Parliament. But morally? And yes, I know if Theresa May was an Aesop's fable it would end with Aesop saying sometimes that this is all just fucking pointless, but let's try it anyway. May not asking Parliament doesn't help the claims of the government wanting a power grab with the EU withdrawal bill etc if May is just going off and doing military action by herself. I mean, she's not doing it, she's just authorising it. If it was just May parachuting in with a pea shooter, I think public support would be much, much higher. After Blair's massive fuck-up with Iraq though, Parliament would have been unlikely to agree to authorising it if it had gone to a vote as no one wants that sort of blood on their hands again. So it probably wouldn't have happened. May said she had to authorise it quickly to aid allies because speed was of the essence, but the attack happened at the beginning of the week and then the strike happened at the end. Then again, under her government, emergency response times have lengthened all over the place. So, should she have done it? Yes or no, uh, depending on, you know, what you want to hear. And really, the best judge of whether or not May should have had a parliamentary vote will be the opinion polls and local elections in May. I mean, not in May, in, in the month, not in she doesn't have elections inside her that would be weird. Anyway, considering only 25% of the public wanted the UK to send airstrikes to Syria there's every chance that Theresa's popularity may, uh, bomb so, that's roughly where we are, uh, leaving out 2,000 years or so of Middle Eastern history that never ever stops getting more complicated. I blame the heat and sand uh, in the foreskin, because seriously, that has got to cause a lot of aggro. Have you ever had that? Uh, is honestly the worst. Anyway, what next? Uh, well, I am guessing that if the West step it up, it will lead to more issues with Russia, and then who knows what. I mean, I have to say, I don't believe in a deity of any sort, but if there is one, and their plan was to end all civilization in the cradle of civilization, then fair play, that is a strong narrative arc take that marvel cinematic universe and now back to mia yeah it's just so again that that they're they're hunger striking they've got a list of demands and the home office respond to that by deporting them quicker which feels like the worst kind of response it's horrific And, and i didn't realize you said earlier that the across europe and everywhere else they have a limit of 28 days detention maximum detention and but we don't copy that at all in the uk I, I, again, I know you sort of said that the Home Office is rolled out lines earlier, but how on earth do we justify not copying the rest of Europe? That seems like a bizarre thing to do. Yeah, I don't. I, I can't explain it. I don't really
1: know enough enough about the legality of it, but in essence, the current government we have, and pretty much all previous governments, have denied the fact that we detain people indefinitely, because indefinite means forever, basically, and of course, no one is detained forever but um, the concept of not having a defined release date or a time limit within which you know you're going to be held there and either deported or released at that point to continue fighting your case is psychologically indefinite, right? Because it's not like a prison sentence when you've committed an offence and you know that you're going to be incarcerated for X amount of time because that's what's considered fair in the the eyes of the justice system. Don't get me started on that. But, um, you know, that's, that's one thing. But to just be held... You know, it is indefinitely because you don't know when you're going to be released. How, Like, I don't understand how there can be a fair argument from the Home Office and the government that that's not indefinite. Because to most people, it feels like it is.
0: Yeah. Do you think that this is that the current political climate has kind of aided the Home Office in this? Because, you know, there's been so much anti-immigration rhetoric over the last however many years now, um, and with that kind of uh, backing a lot of the the Leave campaigns and Brexit and everything, do you think that kind of allows the Home Office to avoid having to deal with this or, or treat these people properly?
1: Um,
0: because politically, sure. you know, they're on the... They're, politically, they're dealing with immigration, and that's supposedly popular in the public eye.
1: Yeah, I think their kind of hard-line immigration policies and and kind of perspective on immigration is definitely yeah, something to kind of neutralise, yeah, the rhetoric that's surrounding Brexit and anti-immigrant. But essentially, like, the hostile environment, which is a package of policies that have been kind of increasing since, like, roughly 2012, they're coming from the government. They're not coming from people who are petitioning their local MPs who they voted for to make that happen. They're coming directly from the government. They're making life so incredibly difficult for any migrant to live in the UK in an attempt to stop people from attempting to come in the first place or for people that are here working, whether legal or illegally to be picked up by the home office. Um, I don't know how that fits into the wider political situation surrounding like yeah, immigration rhetoric and Brexit, but it's the hostile environment and the policies are being created by the government. And that's not in, in like response to a consultation or to any kind of, like, communication between the general public, the population, the voters, and members of Parliament. Like, it's it's not really coming necessarily from that. Sure. I think there might...
0: Yeah. It's hard to say, but... Sure. I mean, it, to be fair, it's something we saw when, when Theresa May was Home Secretary with her kind of go-home vans and all that. You know, it's something that's been in the government for a while, way before Brexit was an issue as well. Um, I years, mean... Years and, and,
1: he, oh, sorry. What were you going to say? No, I just mean years, years and years before the anti-immigration rhetoric that we currently have that is parallel to Brexit existed. Like, this has been happening for a really, really long time.
0: Uh, you mentioned earlier that some of the people are being detained are people that are British citizens, really. And, and I've read uh, there's been quite a lot of reports, I think The Guardian has done stories of people who have been living in the UK for kind of 50-plus years now and working here and paying tax, and they're now being uh, sort of taken by the Home Office and, and detained um, and deported. Why are they... I mean, does it, it? It must concern you. It concerns me and everyone else. You, but that, that they're suddenly becoming even more aggressive with this. Why are they now clamping down on lifelong UK citizens? And and what what do? You, how does it benefit the government? How does it benefit anyone for them to be doing something like that? Um. Yeah, I couldn't answer how it benefits anyone, let alone the
1: government. Um. It completely baffles me. Um. There does seem to be a growing trend of people who grew up in this country believing that they were British only to discover after a certain amount of time that that they have no legal right to be here, whether that's because their parents haven't documented them properly or whether that's because they weren't aware of the status within which they were they were here, whether that's like Commonwealth citizens that were invited by the government to come and fulfill certain roles in the UK that were actually never given what they thought was kind of naturalization citizenship that are now yeah being told that they don't have the right to be here. Um, I don't know why the Home Office would do that. I don't know why it's more aggressive now than it has been before. Um, I don't necessarily think that benefits anyone. <laughs> um, you know, there are some instances, like the one most recently that gained a lot of media attention was was a 53-year-old British man who was born in the UK um, who's been in detention for four months and was recently refused bail because the judge said that he couldn't prove that he was British. Um, and that individual doesn't have a passport, which a lot of british citizens don't and and you know for whatever reason can't gain access to his birth certificate and has there's some interesting situations surrounding adoption and name change and that you know you can read about his case online but it's yeah it seems kind of insane that we would be spending money detaining people that are british or that are commonwealth that have been here for for like their whole lives that are essentially naturalized british citizens but for, for me and for SDS, and I and I know that like in terms of a lot of the campaign work that we do, this is not necessarily about the distinction between who should and who shouldn't be detained. It's about the fact that immigration detention is is wrong. Um, it's immoral. It's ineffective. Um, and it's yeah. And we believe that it, it isn't necessary. There are other community based ways of dealing with the immigration policies and I mean personally I don't believe anyone should be persecuted for the need or the desire to migrate. I think it's a natural part of life.
0: <laughs> sure. No, no, no. No, I'm very glad you pointed to that I think that's that's very important to say too and it's uh exactly what I agree with as well. Um I it's it's sort of I think in a way though it's sometimes Sometimes helpful to try and work out why the Home Office is acting in the way that they are. Um, you know, it, like part of me wonders, and this is being very cynical, perhaps slightly tinfoil hat, but the you know, the, 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 you, you mentioned a lot of these are run by private companies, Circo, G Four S, the 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 chartered flights are all run by specific airlines and companies. They must be profiteering off this. There must be something. You know, how much do you notice that this is a a kind of benefit to them? Um, you know, they've got these big contracts to do these sort of things. That's obviously quite a dangerous. Yeah dangerous thing yeah i mean i i personally think it's terrifying that a private security firm
1: that you know whose, whose staff members are also trained to work in prisons would be responsible for looking after people that are that have migrated to this country for whatever reason but you know it's in with specific concerns surrounding yeah people that are considered adults at risk vulnerable people victims of rape torture sexual violence trafficking like someone that's been trained to work in a prison is not necessarily the right person to deal with that um and obviously my belief is that those people shouldn't be detained in the first place but here we are and yeah private security firms are making profit every year i don't know the statistics of it but i'm sure g4s and circo are not losing money you know they're not doing this out of the goodness in their hearts they are a private security firm that are a profitable business um, and yeah, government contracts are worth a lot of money. They campaign and fight to win them every year. Um, and something like, you know, the panorama documentary about ongoings in Brook House, which is an immigration detention centre near Heathrow, you know, what came out of that seems to have changed nothing. You know, that was video footage of of private security firm guards mocking and abusing detainees, and you know, on a complete power trip and uh, completely abusing their responsibilities behaving in a completely immoral unjust and illegal fashion hasn't seemed to have changed anything there is an ongoing home affairs select committee discussion about you know that case and immigration detention but in the meantime you know thousands of people are still being held in these centers being treated that way by by private security firms like yeah And in terms of charter flights and airlines, of course, the government buys tickets for people that are being deported on commercial flights and the airlines make money out of that. I guess that's the important thing to remember is that your purchasing power has a lot to do with those things. And like when we try and stop deportations on commercial flights, the primary way that we do that is to contact that airline and to get as many people as we know that care about this to contact the airline and say, you know, make this public, what you're doing is wrong. And we're going to tell all your customers that that's what's happening. And then those customers have the right to make a choice to fly with someone else that isn't being complicit in deportations that are violent and aggressive and wrong.
0: And, and how do you just because I was, I was having a, a look myself, and I couldn't find any specific airlines as such, how do you find this out? How would uh, if people wanted to kind of boycott airlines that were doing that? Is it easy to find these things out? Um,
1: none of this information is particularly easy to access, and um, I think that's why you know why we're here and you're saying that a lot of people don't even know about immigration detention as a phenomenon because because the information is inaccessible that's the way the government want it to be um you know I'm not a conspiracy theorist I don't believe this is some big conspiracy I just genuinely believe that the government are intentionally making this information very difficult for people to find um how we find out when people are on flights is just because they're issued a ticket by the home office. It's a commercial flight dependent on where that person is being deported to. I presume it's probably just like the biggest airline that flies there. Um, Recently I've had dealings with like Kenya Airways and China Air as like two examples of, of airlines that are complicit in this. But yeah, in essence the home office will purchase a ticket for the person that's being deported and maybe one or two home office officials to, to like escort them um and that's just done on a on a commercial flight like it's not yeah the airlines i don't know if the airlines are working with the home office in that way but what i know is that they could choose not to board those people and that's completely within their remit and within the pilot's legal right to you know safety of the passengers to ensure that everyone is is safe and someone being deported back when they have a pending immigration case or to somewhere where they feel threatened that's not you know that a pilot has a right to say that that's not okay and this plane's not flying until that person's not on it so
0: sure well like you say the more kind of uh, companies and, and places that are complicit in this the more you know kind of uh agree agreement there is that these sort of immigration detention should exist and people should be treated like that and all of that's bad any anything you can do to kind of block that process or persuade more people to not work alongside them is is obviously for the best yeah um, so very, the probably most important question I'm going to ask you then, um, is apart from, uh, well, no, in fact, uh, firstly, how do people get in touch with, uh, SOAS detainee support if they want to be involved in that? Um, and also, can you tell us maybe who else people should follow, listen to, check out if they want to get involved and if they want to campaign, um, uh, against, uh, the issues of immigration detention centers? Yeah, sure.
1: Um. Yeah, what makes a lot of the groups like SDS and Detain Voices different to other organisations is that we exist primarily to like platform the voice of those being silenced by the state. Um, we work in solidarity, not charity. We try and meet people in detention on their own terms, like without preconceived notions about what it's like to be an immigrant or someone in immigration detention. Um, and yes, yeah, so SOAS Detaine Support, you can find us on Facebook or dot um, we have public meetings every two weeks um, and you can become a visitor at any point. So you can join us and start visiting people in immigration detention. Um, Detained Voices website is very easily accessible. We're also on there on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and in terms of other groups, like there are a lot of other groups and organisations doing like, really amazing work, fighting against the hostile environment in, in a wider setting, um, but also specifically like immoral and unjust practices of the Home Office, um, ones off the top of my head that I would recommend looking and following and reading about is medical justice, um, bail for immigration detainees, uh, the right to remain, um, and then there's kind of slightly less structured organisation, more kind of groups and campaigns such as, you know, Docs Not Cops, Schools Against Borders for Children, the Anti-Raids Network, Sisters Uncut, um yeah those kinds of kind of like slightly more what what other people might describe as radical um but essentially groups that are just prepared to do whatever it takes to fight for justice because what's happening is unjust
0: Thank you, to Mia for having the time to chat with me. Uh, SOAS Detainee Support can be found at Soas, S-O-A-S, Support.wordpress.com. and please do check out their Help SDS page on there, which details how you can give them financial support as they are very much in need of that in order to keep doing the very good work that they're doing. Um, you can also find them on Twitter at S-D-E-T-S-U-P, uh, Detained Voices at detainedvoices.com and at Detained Voices on Twitter. And it is a very important, if sometimes tough read, to hear the accounts of women detained at Yoles Wood, uh, Do check it out and please share their stories uh, to get them heard. Um, all other groups Mia mentioned will be on the linear notes that uh, Kat tirelessly puts together each week. Thank you very much for that. And I'm going to add all those to the PowerPoll Bro Facebook and Twitter accounts by the end of the week as well. Yay, admin. Um, as always, every blooming episode, if you have someone or a group or a campaign that you'd like me to interview or an issue that hasn't yet been covered on this show or needs covering again, please do drop me a line at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or the PowerPoll bro twitter or facebook groups or you know start your own podcast called partly political Broadcast. and as i search for this show in itunes to check the reviews because i do that because i'm that guy then your one will pop up and i might listen to it out of anger and get your message or more likely just give it a one star review and do a sub tweet about it because yes i really am that guy And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Um, Thank you once again for loaning me one of your five senses, uh, or if you're a small ghost-seeing child one of your six senses, and please say hello to my great-granddad. Please don't forget to tell others to listen to the show, uh, give it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, CastMonkey, uh, DipPodicus, uh, the United Church of the Kingdom of Pod, Cast Tits, and others that might actually exist and I haven't just made up. Um, also, if you can donate to the Patreon or Ko-Fi, uh, that would make me do the sort of happy smile that would make me look untrustworthy and possibly land me in trouble, so it is worth it for that. Um, sorry about the slightly shorter episode, uh, that's... That should change uh, as soon as these uh, Frankie Ball gigs that I'm doing end, because they're always on a Monday, which slightly limits uh, writing and recording time. God damn you, thank you. God damn you, Frankie Ball. Also, thank you very much for lovely gigs. Anyway, um, thank you to my brother, the Last Skeptic, for all the music, even though he's not given me any new loops or beats for ages, because apparently he needs them for his job. Yeesh. And to Acast for hosting the show every week, even though uh, no one is using violence to make them do it. This will be back next week when I'll be looking at Theresa May's plans to end further human suffering by having anyone with a paper cut be put to death. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Trump's mission-accomplished potty trainer. Help your little one realise when they finish pooping, just not from the mouth.